All right, coming to you live from a vibe. What the fuck's going on? How the hell is everybody? This is the QTR Podcast. Stoked to be here today. It is September. Well, it's the end of September. I don't know what date it is, and who really cares? Because we've got George Gammon with us today. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my patrons. I'm going to give you the two rules for today's podcast, and then we will be on our merry way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. I love these guys. The only place I buy my gold and silver bullion from, they have done over $3 billion in sales. Uh, They turn around my orders very quickly. They ship discreetly. They've just been professionals across the board. And it's been the only place I've ordered gold and silver bullion from uh, for like two years now or a year and a half. Uh, And I'm very happy with that. I don't feel the need to go elsewhere. I love working with them. And QTR podcast listeners have their own rep there. You can email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com, and she would be more than happy to help you out. If you would rather talk to a person instead of rooting through inventory on a website, by the way, their inventory is always robust, even when a lot of other bullion dealers don't have inventory. But maybe you are brand new to buying uh, gold or silver bullion. Uh, Laura is a wonderful resource. She would love to help you out to get started. JM Bullion, the link is in my podcast description, and you can email Laura at any time. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Steam Room, the Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus Steam Room, for which I have a new script, which I am wholly unprepared for. Let's see if I can find Charlie Bathgate's email here. Here it is. All right, Charlie, what's going on? We're also brought to you by the Sang Lucci Master Course. How about that shit? <laughs> That's what I meant to say. The next live Sang Lucci Master Course starts October 19th. Simply put, the Sang Lucci Master Course is your ticket to a professional grade trading education. It includes over 23 classes of instruction, two months of community platform access. That's cool. And support and lifetime access. There is nowhere else in the world where you can learn equity and options trading, tape reading, trading psychology, and flow trading from four professional traders with over 100 years of combined experience. Learn more at sangluchi.com slash MC, and the link to Sanglucci is in my podcast description. By the way, I talked to Lucci on my last podcast about the master course. It's just a wonderful value. I think it's $3,000, but for, uh, for 23 classes, and it's something like a week long, Uh, well worth it. And the guys know what they're doing. I mean, simply put, they're honest people. They understand the markets well. They've been doing it for a decade. I've known them for a decade. They've been doing it for more than a decade. I've known them for a decade. So check out the Sanglucci Master Course and, of course, the Steam Room, which is a wonderful piece of software that gives you great insights into the options market. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at the Doomberg Terminal. Doomberg is an Really, to be honest with you, one of the brand new substacks that I constantly read, of course, other than my own. <laughs> but seriously, the uh, the Doomberg Terminal has had some wonderful insights over the short time that it's been uh, a thing. It, it, they've only been publishing, I think, since the beginning of this year, it, not even that long, but Doomberg already has over 10,000 followers on Twitter. There's a reason for that. The analysis is wonderful. I know the people behind the account. They are savvy. They have decades of experience, and they know what they're talking about. Doomberg kind of sees the world in the same way that we do, in the same way that my buddy George Gammon does, who we'll talk to in moments. 
Uh, and it's really, it's an interesting take on all things finance. Uh, Doomberg is 100% free, so you can read the Substack for free. That link is in my podcast description. And you can follow them on Twitter at DoombergT. And those links are all in my podcast description. Show some love to my friends over at Doomberg. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause. Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my favorite shipping analyst, Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Sol, and some new people that have reached out to support through Patreon. And I mean you, Steve Gould. What's going on, brother? My friend Howard, Howard, whatever. Oh, God, Chris, get it together. My friend Howard, thank you for your uh, drop-in on Patreon, my brother. John Roberts, thank you, my friend. David Driesen, Nomad, above and beyond. Thank you so much for checking in. Brian Nemich, Gregory Horn, Barry Kelly, Danny Hamlin, William Brooks, Pina Pop, Ryan King, and Sam Hernandez. How can I forget Philip McCrevice? Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Brittany Geidel and some patrons that have been with me for a minute, like my friend Will, my buddy. I don't know if you want me to say your last name, Will, so I won't, but Will something 94. I appreciate you, brother. John Edwards, my buddy Lawrence Lepard is a patron. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. Jeff Barnes. Peter McAuslin, my friend Jay, Ray Myers, Mike Gallup, and Ed Roop. Thank you guys. And J.K. Cunningham, who I say all the time. But thanks so much, brother. I appreciate this shit out of you guys. This podcast is a three-drink minimum. And I will say right off the bat, none of what you are about to hear is financial advice. I am not a SEC-registered anything. I'm not a FINRA-registered anything. This is just open discussion for the purposes of talking about and trying to narrow down exactly how precisely fucked everything is right now. With that being said, talk to your financial advisor if you have any questions. I'm certainly not the person you want to speak to, uh, and you definitely don't want to follow me at my advice. Take all of this with a grain of salt. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. Did I mention the three-drink minimum, though? That's the most important thing. Now that I've disclaimed that I have no idea what I'm talking about, really want to hone back in on that three-drink minimum. Make sure you put those three down. It's going to make things... Even more wonderful than they would be when we have George Gammon here. To be honest with you, I don't really know where the hell George Gammon finds the time to join me anymore. As I've said in past podcasts, he's blown past me on the podcasting highway, which I love because I think he's a wonderful individual. But he keeps coming back, keeps finding time. It's strenuous trying to book him now. It's a little bit different than it used to be when I would just be like, hey, George, you want to do a podcast? And he'd be like, yep. Now it's like a three-week process to get George on the podcast, but we finally did it. What's up, dude? How are you? Hey, I'm doing extremely well. It's always great to come back and talk. Yeah, so George is a supporter of my podcast as well, which I left out of the beginning because I knew we'd be talking about it, and he runs Rebel Capitalist Pro, which is a, uh, a great platform with uh, people like Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, and Brent Johnson. They do live Q&As. He actually just told me Prior to the podcast, I always putting out like two to three pieces of content a day now, which is insane. And I'd love to, you know, make this one long advertisement for your platform. But instead, I want to know where you stand on some shit that has gone down since the last time we've talked. So let's go right into that first. Uh, what happened recently? Yeah. Elizabeth Warren, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib are all calling for the ouster of... Jerome Powell. What do we think about that? Well, Chris, don't you know he's just not dovish enough? I know. That's, I mean, that's insane, right? Did you think that was even a possibility? 
yeah. I mean, 120 billion a month in QE, just committing to a trillion dollars a day in repo if needed, taking the Fed funds all the way back down to the zero lower bound and saying that it's just going to be there indefinitely. It's not I mean, enough. We've got what? Oh, of course not. No, we've got the, even the CPI, which is a completely bogus number. That's running at five, six percent. But there's no talk. Well, I guess there's talk of tapering, but they haven't started to taper yet from the 120 billion. And uh, you know, where does the? It, what's funny too is when they talk about tapering, you know, and they talk about raising rates. Obviously, they're not going to be able to raise rates until they get done tapering. But uh, how are they going to taper from 120 billion down to zero? with an economy and a financial market that is completely dependent upon that quantitative easing to continue to go higher or if not stay at the same level. And, you know, I always use the example of a hot air balloon. And I don't know if we've discussed this before, but I think that a healthy economy is like a hot air balloon in the sense that the economy, the production of goods and services, is the actual balloon part and the basket is the financial economy or the stock market. But now what we have is the complete opposite. We have this giant balloon that is the financial economy and the basket is the real economy. So wherever that financial economy goes, and I would focus specifically on the stock market and real estate prices, so goes the real economy. And it's completely perverse. But that's the reason, one of the main reasons why they're going to be at 120 billion indefinitely, and they have to continue to add more. It's that monetary heroin. Now, can they taper maybe for a few months or maybe even a year and take it down to 80 billion or so? Maybe, maybe. But uh, the bottom line is that at some point in time, they're going to have to go back to 120, and then it's going to have to go up to 200, and then 250, and 300, and it just uh, it never ends. And uh, um, to think what does a more dovish Fed chair look like? You know, I tweeted out uh, at one point that they're going to go full modern monetary theory and they're going to basically say it's because of inequality and because of climate change. And of course, they will help neither of those things by going full MMT. What does an even more dovish Fed chair look like from here? And and how quickly, I mean, look, you can make the argument, okay, things haven't gotten totally batshit out of hand with inflation yet. I mean, it's not, we're not Venezuela yet. Uh, you know, the dollar isn't worthless yet. We haven't lost reserve currency status yet. Uh, the $4 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet in 18 months is something to be acutely aware of. How quickly... Does that accelerate and, you know, how quickly do we fly off the tracks if we bring in somebody that's even more dovish? Well, I think what we have to understand first and foremost is how dollars are created, because then we'll be able to understand how could the Fed be more dovish, right? So in the past, uh, the commercial banking system created about 97% of the dollars that were circulating in the real economy by extending loans or extending credit into existence. And Richard Warner has discussed this at, at great length. But now what we have is this hybrid system where if you look at the middle of 2020 or so, you can see commercial bank lending has actually decreased. So in a world where we didn't have this uh, deficit spending being monetized by the Fed, 
you could see some serious deflationary pressures there, especially in asset prices. But now what we have is the federal government spending, let's call it four or five trillion dollars uh, last year, and I'm assuming they'll do the same this year. They say it's only going to be three trillion, but yeah, let's let's wait till the beginning of 2022 and look back and see what it is. But that's all deficit spending, so they're not they're not taking in taxes in order to respend those dollars back into the economy, right? They have to borrow the money, then the Fed buys most of those bonds, or they end up on the balance sheet of the Fed. So those are dollars that aren't being taken out of the real economy. They're actually just brand new bank reserves that didn't exist before that are denominated in dollars, and that's what the Fed is using to buy those treasuries, basically from from Janet Yellen. So that creates more dollars on the balance sheet of non-bank entities in the real economy. What I mean by that, just the average Joe and Jane and the average small, mid-sized business and even corporation. That's why we saw M2 money supply in 2020 uh, go up by about 25%. But in that world, the Federal Reserve is still dependent upon a third party, if you want to call it that, the government, in creating more dollars or creating this inflation or being more dovish in the sense that it's getting more dollars onto the balance sheet of these non-bank entities in the real economy. So how would the Fed take control of that? Well, they have to have a central bank digital currency because that's the only transfer mechanism to get these bank reserves that they actually can create that are uh, denominated in dollars actually circulating in the real economy. Because without that transfer mechanism, then all they do is just, let's say they buy four, they can buy $100 trillion worth of uh, mortgage-backed securities if they existed. And they just create the bank reserves. But that's really just a balance sheet transaction between the commercial bank and the Fed. It doesn't really incentivize the bank to go out in the real economy and create more loans. Uh, it really, it's just an asset swap, like my buddy Jeff Snyder always says. So uh, if we all have a, a, an account at the Federal Reserve, just like your listeners and you and I may have an account at Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America, then we have an app on our phone. So we have direct access basically to spend bank reserves that the, that the Fed puts into our account. So now all of a sudden the Fed can have far more control, if not total control, over the amount of dollars that are being created in the real economy, let's just say through stimulus checks or through um, reducing uh, uh, lending standards even further than they already are for mortgages, for credit cards, for auto loans, as an example. And and sure, all that debt goes onto the Fed's balance sheet or all those loans that they're extending. But the Fed can have negative equity. It doesn't matter. There's nothing that prevents them. They can go, they can be technically insolvent, and that doesn't prevent them from creating more bank reserves to do more quantitative easing or creating more bank reserves to put into your account or into the account of whatever, uh, you know, whatever group in the American population is favored at the time by XYZ political group. Right. And that's so whether it's Elizabeth Warren, whether it's AOC, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whether it's any of them, if they want the Fed to be, quote unquote, more dovish to create, let's say, equality, uh, the only way the Fed can do that from a technical standpoint is through a central bank digital currency. That's why I think uh, the probability is high. We see that in the future. And that kind of 
money and that kind of access to bank reserves becomes inflationary immediately because it gets spent immediately and it drives up prices immediately. Is that right? Yeah. And let's just assume that it didn't for a moment. Let's just assume that they did uh, $2,000 a month in UBI. They, meaning the Fed, uh, they put that directly into your account. So they're circumnavigating the commercial banking system and the politicians. I mean, if you think about it, it's a really interesting, con it is MMT because the, the government would not have to issue debt in order for those dollars to get into your account, right? It, 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 it's just straight MMT. It's just a transaction right. uh, between you and the Fed. But let's just say that the majority of people decided to save that money. Well, I mean, we're talking about Fed coins. We're talking about just basically uh, software that can be coded. So if you, Chris, didn't spend your STEMI check fast enough, the government could just put a timer on it and say, okay, if you don't spend it by the end of the month, it's gone. So what would that do to velocity? All of a sudden, then you get velocity wherever you need it to be to bail out the largest debtor of all time, which is the federal government. And that's the way they need to bail them out is through inflation. That's the path of least resistance. George, what do you make of this debt ceiling fiasco? You know, every time this happens, and it's been, you know, it's happened several times since I've been uh, red-pilled, since I've been paying attention. Every time it happens, there are words kind of thrown around from both sides of the aisle and some people that feign interest in really capping the debt ceiling, even though it's mostly political, they're trying to just argue with the other side of the aisle. Uh, and I always kind of hold out slim hope that some, you know, the nation or a, or a prominent politician will have an aha moment and say, all right, enough with the debt ceiling fiasco. Do you think that's ever going to happen? And, you know, or do you think we're kind of going to go the way of they'll just remove the debt ceiling, which, of course, is a uh, a horrifying travesty uh, because it was created specifically to prevent it uh, from being removed. <laughs> In essence, you know, it was it was created to prevent debt from be getting out of control, which, of course, it already has. Uh, what do you make of that yeah. whole fiasco? Well, I think it's theatrics and I think they'll they'll raise the debt ceiling, but I think in the future they won't have to. Because if we go down the path of MMT, uh, then let, let's just think about the balance sheets that are involved there. So you've got the balance sheet of the non-bank entities in the real economy. So that's just average Joe and Jane, let's say. you got the balance sheet of the Fed, and you got the balance sheet of the government. Well, if the Fed is sending out all the, the, the Federal Reserve, is sending out all the STEMI checks, if they're the ones that are depositing the, the dollars into the accounts of the infrastructure companies, let's say, if they're the ones that are paying for Social Security, if they're the ones that are creating the dollars for all of these other projects, then effectively the, the U.S. government, the federal government, would not have to issue debt at all. They wouldn't have to issue bonds. Their, their balance sheet would be completely out of the picture. The balance sheet would, the only two balance sheets that would be affected would be the non-bank entities in the real economy and the Fed. And that's MMT. So, um, yeah, temporarily, I think that they'll go back and forth and try to use it for political posturing and whatnot. But in the future, if we go down that MMT path, I don't think <laughs> there's no need to raise the debt ceiling because the government won't take on any debt. Yeah. How fast do you think the train goes off the tracks for the United States if we go down the MMT route, which we're going down? Yeah, it's I think for the first year or two. It's going to be claimed as a huge success. 
because I think you would see um, potentially wealth and uh, or at least as measured by dollars and uh, asset prices go up at a faster rate of inflation. But then what happens is the tide turns. And once the tide turns, you know, like our buddy Schiff always says, once the inflation genie gets back in the bottle, you cannot get her back in. And uh, that's exactly what we saw in, in Weimar, Germany, with the hyperinflation they had there. You know, most people don't realize that the seeds of the hyperinflation in Germany were actually sown in 1914 when they started increasing their money supply in order to go to World War One. And then when World War One was done, uh, most of the countries said, OK, no more money printing. But the Germans continued to print money at a rate of about 65 percent per year or excuse me so at a rate of expanding their money supply by 65 percent per year okay and their rationale was hey listen asset prices are going up faster than the rate of inflation so sure we've got some high inflation it right. might be 10 percent it might be 15 percent but who cares because asset prices are going up by 20 percent or 25 percent so we've basically created a free lunch where all we have to do are print these pieces of paper, these marks, and everyone's just going to get rich. We're going to eradicate poverty. And then I would also like to point out that from 1920 to roughly 1922, or, you know, in the middle of 1922 or so, um, the mark actually appreciated in value against gold. It appreciated in value. Now think about that. Does that remind you, you of anybody? Does that remind you of any currency right now? Yeah. So if you're someone that's living in Germany, I mean, talk about whistling by the graveyard. You're seeing in 1922, you're seeing your the value of your fiat currency appreciate against gold and most likely the dollar, the U.S. dollar, right? And while unbeknownst to you, in a year's time that same fiat currency will quite literally be toilet paper. You see, most people think that uh, they just went from 15% inflation to 30, to 100, to 1,000, to a billion, to a trillion. And, um, you know, yes, goods and services went up in price, but relative to other currencies uh, and relative to gold, they thought they had performed an economic miracle. And uh, there are a lot of countries that, that thought they did the same. I mean, oh, yeah. if you look at uh, Germany, they were like the, the pinnacle of what an economy could be in like 1920 and 1921, uh, just before the whole house of cards started to collapse in on itself. And that's kind of the, the number that you look at with their uh, money growth in the with their what would be M2 today. <laughs> You know, they're increasing it at about a 65% clip uh, compounded from 1914 to 1920, uh, 1922. And so what we did in uh, 2020 was our uh, money supply measured the same way. And I'm not saying M2 is accurate. I'm just saying, sure. you know, trying sure. to compare apples to apples uh, was at an increase of 25%. So we're not there yet. But especially if we go down this MMT path, to your point, um, we're, I, I think it's highly probable that we increase the money supply by 50 or 60 percent per year. But like Germany, I think we're going to have a couple years 
where it feels great. Right. And all the Keynesians and all the MMT people, all the AOC, the Elizabeth Warren, the Stephanie Keltons, the Moslers are pointing at people like you and me and maybe Schiff and saying, oh, look at these stupid Austrians. They're worried about, uh, you know, a fiat currency, about the Federal Reserve just creating money out of nowhere. Uh, they're, you know, they thought they just didn't understand that the United States is a currency issuer. Right. Not a currency user. These dumb rubes, yeah. you know, these knuckle draggers. And uh, they're going to say that for two, you know, a year, two years, who knows. And then the the game of musical chairs will be over. I love when people make the argument that Austrians just don't understand the system. When really the problem is <laughs> Austrians do understand the system. You know, I can't tell you. There was an old Peter Schiff debate he did on MSNBC a long, long time ago. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Maybe it's 10 years ago where he's talking about inflation. And, of course, good old Peter is talking about the expansion of the money supply when he says inflation. And, you know, one of the Keynesians, who I think was like a Princeton or Penn uh, PhD or finance professor, starts to lecture him. Hey, Peter, you know, there's this little thing that we learn about in the first year called velocity of money. You know, blah, 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 blah. And she's talking in that fucking right. tone of voice. Like, Peter Schiff doesn't understand what the fuck velocity of money is. It's like, moron... It's not fucking us that doesn't understand the system. It's you that doesn't understand the system. You know what I mean? You understand half the picture. You know, the Austrians understand the whole picture. Sure, we understand the Keynesian's argument and the Keynesian kind of uh, thought process when it comes to being able to print unlimited amounts of money. And it's that exactly that gives us cause for concern. And so, I mean, you see a lot of this with the pandemic, too. You know, I had people, I know I said on a past podcast, not to shift fucking gears like a 20-ton dump truck here, but, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I had somebody on a uh, past pod, or on Twitter, rather, when I was talking about ivermectin, you know, send me the uh, debunking of the Egyptian study that was in the meta-analysis that was, you know, cited by everybody when it came to ivermectin. And send me that in a message or a tweet somewhere and be like, you know, the problem is you haven't seen this. And I'm like, the problem is you're just seeing it. And I saw it three weeks ago when it came out and I've already read all the responses and, you know, factored it into. So the problem sometimes isn't, you know, that we're like uh, grossly misinformed. The problem sometimes, if you think the system is fucked, is you can see it and you can understand exactly where the flaws are. Um, and I'm not saying we know everything, George, because we don't. But it, it, it's funny, you know, to think that some people think like, oh, the, you know, the problem is we just don't get it. We just don't get velocity, right? Yeah, I, I really get a kick out of uh, people who say that because it just goes to show their ignorance. And um, that's why I always tell people, I think whether it's with economics or with, uh, I guess we're not on YouTube here, so we can call it covid um, you got to know what you don't know. Well, we're not on YouTube now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, you got to know what you don't know. And, uh, very few people do. So let me give you an example. Let's go back to velocity. And I think this concept applies to what you're talking about with, uh, with COVID as well. So how do we get velocity? Well, it's just a simple equation. You just take GDP and you divide it by the, the money supply. 
right? And that's how you get velocity. But that assumes that one, GDP is accurate, but it also assumes that the money supply is accurate. Well, there's a problem there because what they're measuring is the dollars or are the dollars that can be measured. Well, what about all the dollars that create or created or exist in the shadows? Yes, what about, what about those? <laughs> the, the euro dollars that are in existence or being created or destroyed at any given time. I mean, if you actually study how the system works, it's uh, highly probable that there are two to three times more dollars in the shadow banking system just on banks' balance sheets between themselves, I call it the ghost ledger, or in the euro dollar system than are measured by M2 money supply. So you just think about that. Let's just say that they're using M2 money supply to get that velocity number. Uh, but let's just say that uh, M2 only measures 25% of the pie, right? Well, if that goes up, let's say, by a trillion dollars, but it's only 25%, well, the other 75% could have gone down by $4 trillion. And on net balance, you have fewer dollars circulating uh, in the, the global economy, maybe even in the U.S. economy when you consider the bank's balance sheets. And they're circulating, chasing goods and services that that should be into that should go into that velocity calculation. And so if you adjust, as an example, let's look at times where we've had high velocity and low velocity. If you look at the 1990s, we had a very high velocity, relatively speaking. OK, well, we're not including all of the dollars that were created or destroyed in the euro dollar system. And the same thing from, let's call it 2002, especially after 2008, all the way to where we are today, where you've seen velocity as measured by the Federal Reserve go straight down. But again, that's only using 25% of the, to just as an example, that's only using 25% of the total dollars that are in existence. So how can you be so sure exactly what velocity is to the point where you can point at all the Austrians and tell them that they're just stupid right. and they don't get it. No, 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 no. It's you that doesn't get it and from the standpoint of they don't know what they don't know. Yes, it's a great point that you finished, uh, that you concluded while I was in the middle of taking a sip out of my tea, which is why there was an awkward <laughs> two and a half second pause there that I will not be editing out because that's part of the charm of my podcast, my laziness. But I think you're 100% right. And the, you know, the euro dollar system, if you want to remind my listeners, because I know we've talked about it before, those are just dollars created by financial institutions overseas. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Those are dollars that uh, that is out of the purview of the Fed. They don't know they exist. They can't quantify them. Uh, nobody really knows if uh, you know. There's a bank in the Cayman Islands, as an example, that uh, creates a, a trillion dollar loan and gives it to. Evergrande, as an example, to, to bail them out or something. Uh, those dollars are, the Fed doesn't know about those. And right. those dollars could come back into the U.S. economy. They could be on the balance sheets of banks uh, between themselves. You know, because when banks settle, it's not just at the Federal Reserve with bank reserves. Bank, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan can settle with Wells Fargo, and they can have an internal ledger mechanism uh, where there, where one bank is extending credit to the other. Well, those are dollars that have been created. So how how do you account for those? And the answer is they can't and they don't. 
And uh, so, therefore, when you look at velocity, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. And if people who don't and don't acknowledge that, uh, it just shows that they, they don't really understand the scope of what they're talking about. Yeah, let's stay on the topic of our completely rigged financial system that has been manufactured and built uh, for benefit of elites and uh, the rich only. And I want to ask you about, uh, we had two Fed governors resign uh, over the last week. Robert Kaplan, uh, who was, quote, an active buyer and seller of stocks, quote, in 2020 per the Wall Street Journal. By the way, this fucking guy was buying and selling lots of more than a million dollars each in S&P futures, George. So when I make jokes about the Fed buying S&P futures, uh, I always thought it would be the New York Fed desk, you know, buying them through like Goldman Sachs. So it turns out it's Robert Kaplan in his fucking E-Trade account or whatever, uh, you know, buying S&P futures, <laughs> buying, buying S&P futures with his left hand and sending an email to Jerome Powell with his right hand with commentary on, you know, which direction monetary policy should go. And you had right. Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren, who, quote, made frequent or substantial trades in 2020, quote, that is according to Reuters. Rosengren was trading in REITs uh, that hold mortgage-backed securities, which, of course, the Fed has been buying. He made as many as 37 separate trades in four REITs while the Fed purchased almost $700 billion in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, let's just talk about this. And Powell, Powell, and Powell, and Powell owns millions of muni bonds. Yeah, he owns Powell's millions of dollars in municipal thing. bonds. Right, exactly. So let's just let's just talk about this for a second, okay? Kaplan resigns. Rosengren resigns. I love Rosengren too. He's like, I got a kidney problem. You know, he's been on the kidney transplant list. You know, I hope the guy gets better, but he's been on the fucking kidney transplant list since summer of you know 2020, and he he didn't resign in 2020. He was too busy trading. You know, now all of a sudden, oh, my kidney hurts. Okay, fine. Again, hope he gets better. Don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. But the point of the matter is, doesn't Jerome Powell need to resign here too? I mean, not only does, you know, did it break that he owned the municipal bonds uh, in a joint account uh, that, you know, the Fed was involved in, in purchasing or similar ones that the Fed was involved in purchasing, but he has overseen this whole circus, right? So ostensibly, you would think that Jerome Powell would be the, you know, tone at the top, as they say for corporations, uh, that would wrangle these people in every once in a while and say, hey, uh, nobody's fucking buying S&P futures today, right? And, uh, you know, even if he did that and they lied to him, all right, fine. You know, but he's at the top here. And in addition to participating, um, you know, I don't know. I wrote a piece on my blog, Fringe Finance, basically suggesting that Powell should resign as well. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? And, let me lead you right here, uh, as you know, an attorney would do in a courtroom, by asking, isn't this undeniable proof that the rigged game is far more disgusting and pornographic than we've ever thought? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's obvious. If, if you don't start, if, if your base case is not that politicians have an insatiable lust for power and will only pursue their own self-interest. And the majority of them are the dregs of our society. And when I say politicians, I'm including the central planners at the, the Federal Reserve or the, the, the Treasury. 
I mean, I, I think that you, I had a quote the other day, you know, I think you're lying to yourself more than they are lying to you to get your vote in the first place. That's a great quote. And it, yeah, I mean, should uh, Powell resign? Under principle, I would say yes. But then if we zoom back or zoom out a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know. Because uh, it, it's not like the next Fed chair is going to be as pure as the driven snow. And uh, especially when you have the political narrative that is echoing throughout our entire country right now, not only with the, the Fed becoming more dovish with the central bank digital currency, all the things that we discussed earlier, but also with the just full attack on our freedom and liberty as individuals in this society, you know, maybe maybe Powell's the best bet because we know that he's most likely uh, going to be relatively moderate, uh, but who knows? I mean, I think you could have an argument for, for both, but from a principle standpoint, yeah, absolutely. Well, what about the idea that in addition to being paid a salary, uh, a modest salary, people in Powell's position and People like Nancy Pelosi, whose husband managed to dabble in call options before Microsoft won a government contract, I'm sure completely coincidentally. What do you think of the idea of like the, you know, uh, making sure that they only take all of their funds and put it into some type of account that all it does is maybe keeps up with inflation. It, you know, it, it guarantees you to pay whatever inflation is plus, you know, 50 basis points. And that's it. No trading, no nothing. N like nada, nothing yeah, else. I think term limits would, would be a good solution or something to explore. But, um, you know, I think we need to understand that more rules or regulations aren't really the long term solution and just getting better people in government sure i don't think is the long-term solution i think what is the long-term solution is reducing the power and size of the federal government because then you're going to get different people that apply for those positions like the, the it's it's very it's obvious to me and i don't uh, understand how most americans don't see this but as the government gets bigger and as they get more power and more control, it's going to attract people that naturally want to have power and control other people, people that have that insatiable lust for power. Well, usually those are the types of people you don't want in charge because eventually, even if you like the guy or gal that's in charge right now, eventually someone is going to be in charge that is going to use that power right. that you gave the government against you and the people you love. Right. And you that's don't get it back. Line. You don't get it back. And you don't that's get it all, back. You know, that's what the Australians are finding out about gun rights right now. You don't fucking get them back, you know? And, yeah, and this is one of the right. things, you know, I was talking to Bill Cohen about uh, early in September. Uh, I'm sure you listened to that podcast because you sent me a message on September 13th, 2021, that says, quote, this is this is a verbatim direct message you sent me, quote, next time I come on, remind me to smash that dude's, quote, arguments, quote, who was literally mocking freedom at the end of your interview. That shit really gets me fired up. 
And one of the things we were talking about was Australia. They relinquished their right to guns, and now look at what's going on in Australia. People are getting fucking beaten by police left and right for not wearing masks. Hey, it's for your health, George. It's for your health. The police are walking around to local parks and kicking the shit out of people for not wearing masks. It's all its all for your health, right? It's all for your health and safety. Have you seen what's going on in Australia? And would you like to comment on the uh, on the Bill Cohen podcast? Of course. I've been, I mean, I've been doing videos on it almost, uh, almost daily. And if you are someone who favors uh, mandates, we'll call, well, I, I'm, again, I'm used to YouTube where I have to really censor what I say. But if you're someone who is in favor of vaccine mandates that are issued by the government, Australia is where we go. That's the, the logical conclusion to your argument. Right. Because the whole argument is, sure, we need to have restrictions right. in order for public safety. OK, well, then you've got to agree with what they're doing in Australia. And I'd like to add a personal story, not my personal story, but one I read yesterday on my YouTube channel of an Australian citizen that was actually granted permission to leave. And I don't think most Americans know that if you're in Australia right now, you can't leave. Right. It's not just that they're locking you in your house and you're only allowed to leave an hour a day. And beating the shit out of you. It's not just that the the police are beating the shit out of you. By the way, the police are armed, too. All you're going to do is watch one of these videos. They're all carrying guns. Go ahead. Well, it's because they replaced the police with the military. That's that's why. They they replaced the police with the military. Uh, But you, you can't leave. Only under special... Uh, exemption can you leave and of course who do you get the exemption from that would be all of these power hungry psychopaths that are in the government that created the rules in the first place so but this gentleman was talking about his wife and three kids and their three kids are like four six and seven or you know something like very young kids and they came back into the country well of course they had to quarantine for 14 days and their experience was mind-boggling. I mean, to the point where the uh, the military, uh, or whatever they're calling them in Australia, they would not only check on them throughout the day just to make sure that they didn't, you know, walk outside for a minute and get a breath of fresh air, because you know that would be the end of the world uh, as we know it. But they are also checking up on them at two, three o'clock in the morning. So knocking on the door, the wife has to come to the door so they can see that they're there and that the kids are sleeping to, again, make sure that they didn't, you know, step outside for a moment. Because then, of course, you know, COVID would just run rampant throughout all of Australia because of that one person just being outside for 30 seconds. They also went to the uh, some other extreme measures within inside the little apartment they had them quarantining in. They wouldn't allow them to have certain utensils. Okay, why? Is that some sort of I know why. You know, COVID restriction? Why? Why do you think? I don't, because I don't know Because they why. don't want them to be used as weapons, the same reason you don't get them in prison. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. And uh, then they wouldn't let them serious? use the... You didn't really think of that? Then what, did they, no. what did they not want them to have? Knives? Steak knives? I don't know what it was. They just said certain utensils, and then oh, they, yeah. wouldn't let them, they wouldn't let them run the microwave oven either. Yeah, here, here's a spoon and a butter knife. Good luck, uh, you know, r- rising up against your government with those. 
Yeah. So that's and so I wanted to just tell that quick story and then remind uh, Americans that those Australians are not allowed to leave right now. And so then you have the Australians in Perth, as an example, where they don't have these lockdown measures. And they're saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal because we can go outside here in Perth. You know, we can go to the restaurants. We can go to the cafes. We can go to the bars. So if those people over on the east side of Australia, if they would have just locked down even harder at the beginning, if we just had even more government and more control over our lives, then they would be in the same position that we're in to where they are allowed to actually go outside and live their life. But what they're not including in that analysis is the fact they can't leave. Right. They can't leave. So let's go back to East Germany when they had the Berlin Wall. Were, were the restaurants open? I, I think so. Did they, did they have a cafe? Did they have a bar? I, I would guess they did in Germany. You know, they're pretty fond of uh, a beer every once in a while. But they couldn't leave. So did they really, truly have freedom? And another thing I want to point out on that note, Chris, that I think most people just don't really think through is the Australians really get fixated on the fact that they have very few COVID deaths. So, well, we've only had a thousand COVID deaths and you in the United States and all your stupid freedom and liberty, you have 600,000. So we're doing so much better, quote unquote, than you are. Right. But see, what they're doing is they're making the mistake of calculating COVID deaths instead of years lost. That's what you have to calculate. That's correct. Because let's think this through. The average age of someone who dies from COVID in Australia is 82 years old. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt, okay, and say that they had another five years to live. And then let's just say that we adjusted their numbers to where they had the same death rate as we have here in the United States for the entire population per 100,000. Okay, well, then they would have about 50,000 deaths. Okay, so let's times that by five years because that's the average amount of years lost for that 82-year-old person, giving them the benefit of the doubt, assuming they're going to live to 87. That would be 250,000 years lost. Okay, but in order to save that 250,000 years, you've got to lock people in a cage and not allow them to leave and take all of these draconian measures and basically take their life away from them for at least a year. And let's just say that you did that or that's been done with half the population. Well, Australia's 25 million people that would be 12.5 million people that have lost one year of your life. So what they've done is they've said, look, we've given people 250,000 years, but we've taken 12.5 million. Now, how on earth does that make sense? Especially when you look at the fact that you are taking life and years away from the young and giving them to the old. Well, this is why you always got to look behind the headline, right? When when you're talking about, uh, you know, let me unpack both things. First was uh, disarming the public, right? What what the left sees is they see Alex Jones on Piers Morgan going, 1776 will rise again! You know, I don't know if you remember that interview, but Alex Jones just losing his fucking shit. 
and people saying, <laughs> oh, man, these gun advocates are really unhinged total maniacs. And while that may be true in his case, the point that he's trying to make and arguably why he's so fucking fired up to begin with is because he understands the concept. You know, we will not relinquish them because once he does relinquish them, you don't get them back. That's it. It's game over going forward. You know, not in the year 2100, not in the year 2200. We're never going to, uh, you know, not in the year 3000. You won't get them back. And so, you know, the uh, the the point is important enough to be delivered uh, with some gusto, probably just not, you know, like that. Dude probably drank half a bottle of whiskey before he went on CNN. I mean, maybe, ah, well, <laughs> now that I think about it, it might not be the worst idea. But, you know, moving moving from there to looking behind, uh, you know, the, the death numbers, right? Okay. Uh, you know, oh, we had, you know, X amount of COVID deaths. What a shame. It's like, all right, well, how many of those people were going to die within the next six months? Anyways, not to be a dick, you know, well, one more day, one more day with my loved one is worth $10 trillion, you know, but okay. But like, is it really, we have to be practical here too. And one example of, you know, you make a great point. Okay. We have to look at years lost instead yeah, of correct. the numbers correct. that fit the narrative that you're trying to push out. One of the pieces I wrote on my blog uh, earlier this month had to do with a study that called into question the hospitalization numbers, George. Because yeah, I saw it on Zero Hedge. Yeah, hospitalization numbers are often called into question, right? Those are the, or not called into question, but they're paraded out as the end all be all. Here's why we need to lock down again. Hospitalization numbers are up, right? And that's always, you know, they, they display it on CNN all day, every day. And so what this uh, study revealed here, and I'm sorry, because I'm kind of doing my research as I'm on the phone with you instead of doing it prior to uh, being on the phone. <laughs> okay, so what this study called the COVID-19 hospitalization metric in the pre- and post-vaccine eras as a measure of pandemic severity uh, concluded was that near, and this is a preprint, right? So not peer-reviewed yet. Nearly half of people hospitalized with COVID have mild or asymptomatic cases. So it's like, okay, well, how does that happen? And The Atlantic actually wrote an article about it too, that said, there are many COVID patients in the hospital with fairly mild symptoms who have been admitted for further observation on account of their comorbidities. And then another portion of the patients in this tally are in the hospital for something unrelated to COVID. So it's like, all right, before we flip out about, you know, who's in the hospital, how many hospitalizations there are. And then look what happened this past week with fucking what's her name running off set of the view, you know, minutes before she was supposed to interview president or VP, well, soon to be president Kamala Harris, uh, Anna Navarro was told by her producer while the view was taping and you can, the video clip of this is out there. I wrote about it on my blog, but the producer says, Hey, uh, Anna's got to get off stage and Sonny's got to get off stage. And these two women, you know, and nobody knows what's going on. There's this dumbfounded air around them. What happened? Okay. Well, we're going to go to the interview of the VP and, and the producer yells, well, no, we're not, you know? And they're like, wow, what's going on? Oh, it turns out, George, she got a positive COVID test. Dun, dun, dun. Instant death, right? You know, COVID is waiting around the corner with a gun to shoot the vice president, right? And so, uh, you know, they found out that night that it was a false positive. She took two more tests. She took one PCR test and one antigen test, and they both came back negative. And so another piece I looked at 
was uh, and wrote about last week was how many of these PCR tests are coming back as false positive. Some studies say up to 16%. Other studies say up to 50%. And right. how much chaos do those false positives create? And are we are we looking at that chaos and counterintu- uh, counter in- uh, counterintuitive kind of uh, uh, consequences when we do an overall risk reward of all of this nonsense and hysteria that we're drumming up about COVID. And I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but just one more example. Friend of mine has a son, all right, who had a soccer game, a 10-year-old son who had a soccer game that was canceled because one child on one team, all right, out of 50 kids had been, quote, exposed to COVID. That's what the email said. We've had a child that's been exposed to COVID. We need to call off the game, you know, like it's fucking Ebola. All right. So they go through this big thing and all the parents go through all this hysteria. There's like an online forum where they all chat with each other and people, who is it? And who did he see? And are the parents responsible? And I can't believe we got to change the schedule and this and that and the other thing. And after they were all bitching and moaning at each other and all hell breaks loose for 48 hours, oh, it comes back, the child tested negative. <gasps> oh, thank God he's going to live. He's going to live, George. It's a miracle. But the point right. is, how much fucking chaos are we drumming up out of nowhere because of all this stuff? I think people have to compartmentalize what's happening with COVID and put them and put it into like three buckets, right? So I think the first bucket is people, and I think they just naturally do this, uh, they look at COVID in terms of the risks, okay? And then the next thing they do is they look at the vaccine in terms of benefits. That would be the second bucket. But those are the only two buckets they look at. And what I wanna go into later on in the conversation is the third bucket, which Uh, I think is most important and that's to think about the government and what the government looks like now and what it could look like in three to five ten years if we move forward with all of these mandates and restrictions so let's back up a little bit because what you were talking about is the first bucket where people are looking at COVID in terms of the risk I saw a study and it was actually from Bill Maher. I think he got it from the New York Times, and I think you'll find this interesting. And it'll it'll help you understand, really, the hysteria that we see in the United States and in Australia and other places in the world, where they did a, a, a poll, and they broke it down into Democrat, Republican, Independent. And we can, let's just assume for a moment that most of those Democrats that were polled, they're your average CNN viewer, right? That's probably pretty likely. They asked them, what are the probabilities of you having to go to the hospital if you test positive for COVID? 41%, Chris, 41% of the Democrats thought that your prob- the possibility or probability of you going to the hospital if you get COVID was over 50%. Over 50%. <laughs> when that number is really about one to three, right. and that's not even adjusting really for age and uh, your health and comorbid- comorbidities and whatnot. So what we're dealing with here is a certain section of our population that doesn't see COVID as 
a little worse than the flu. Or, and I'm not saying that COVID is something you want to get. Right. Absolutely not. The, the COVID is not the flu. It does different things. If, if at all possible, you want to avoid getting COVID. That's Correct. for sure. Um, but it's not brain cancer. Right. And, and that's how people are, are treating it because of, you know, all of the, the misinformation and anti-science, quote unquote, that's out there that's being perpetuated by the mainstream media just because they have this uh, this agenda. And I think that that uh, that study really is a perfect example of this playing out right in front of our eyes. So is it any surprise that that mother at the soccer game was freaking out or this person on The View was freaking out or you drive down the street and you see someone walking their dog and there's not another person within 500 yards, but yet they're wearing five masks right? or they're driving their car and they're wearing a face shield with no one else in the car. Um, it, it starts to make more sense. So I don't know how you combat that type of uh, misinformation, but I think it kind of plays into what people should think about, in my opinion, in that third bucket. And because that's if you really zoom out and, and look at the whole thing, then you can start to analyze, OK, what uh, how should I look at this and what are the true risks and uh, rewards, not only for me, but for future generations. And that's what I think we should really be concerned with right now. And that's what most people uh, that are pro vaccine mandate especially from the government, that they really just don't think through. They look at what's happening today as though it's a snapshot in time. That, it, that it, The only way that it could change is if we go back to 2019. Right. They, they don't understand that what we're living through today, in, in all, all, a lot of areas, but especially like Australia or New York City or New Orleans or San Francisco, where they've implemented these uh, government vaccine mandates is we are just living through the first 30 seconds of a 10 minute YouTube video. Yeah. And trust me, once we get to minute eight and nine, you're not it gets be real, real ugly. You're not going to be fucking happy. You know, you're not because it's just now the headlines are starting to break. Oh, well, COVID is going to be here with us forever. It's going to be endemic, right? What would our response have been 18 months ago if we had heard that? If the if we had just leveled with the public that, you know, uh, we haven't had a lot of success with vaccines for coronaviruses, you know, in, perhaps in mitigating them, but not in eliminating them, right? So what, what would we have done if we had communicated that clearly? I saw it just today, dude. I went to the Drexel bookstore on Chestnut Street because I needed to get a notebook, and I was right there, and there's a big sign on the front door. Mask required, and underneath it said, regardless of vaccination status. And I stopped and I took a photo of it with my phone because I was just thinking to myself, man, what if everybody who got vaccinated, you know, what would they have done if they knew that this was going to be the outcome? Certainly, my best friend said, you know, who, by the way, is as liberal as they come, loves MSNBC, you know, loves Dr. Fauci. He said to me, when they tried to reinstitute mask mandates after he got vaccinated, fuck it, I'm not doing it. This is the reason I got vaccinated. You know, what's going on? He started to, you know, to go down the uh, the rabbit hole a little bit and be like, you know, what's going on? Am I being lied to? You know, and I'm just like, yeah, dude, fucking get used to it. Get ready. How many vaccines would we have been able to administer, George, if we had 
leveled with people and said, eh, you know what? You're going to have to wear these masks again. And by the way, you're going to have to lock down and basically do whatever the fuck we say anyways from this point forward anyway. So enjoy the vaccine and, you know, go forth and well, prosper. That, that's a great point. So so now we're back to the, the first two buckets. You know, we're talking about the risks of COVID and the benefits of the vaccine. And what most people really completely miss here is what's the end game, right? Let's look at Australia right now. What's their end game? You cannot eradicate COVID. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to go away, no matter how many people are vaccinated, as long as the the vaccines that we have don't create sterilized, uh, uh, a type of immunity that's called sterilized immunity. And just what that means, basically, is that uh, once you take the vaccine, you're not able to transmit the virus. That would that would be sterilized immunity. But these vaccines don't offer that. So unless you come up with some vaccines that do, it really doesn't matter what percentage right. of the population gets vaccinated. You're not getting rid of COVID. Right. End of uh, story. Because end of story unless you can get the transmission rate down below uh, uh, an R0 value of one because then it will dissipate naturally but what we've seen obviously in Israel and other places is that the current set of vaccines we have uh, not only is the viral load uh, just as much as someone who uh, hasn't had the vaccine at all but uh, they're transmitting it they're transmitting it at a rate far higher than that uh, one R not value. Therefore, uh, all Australia is doing is just kicking the can further down the road. They can talk about how many lives they've saved uh, as of now, but at some point in time, even if they get up to their 80% target, which is completely arbitrary, uh, it's going to go right back to where Israel is today. And that means that if they're truly concerned about health, you know, using their own narrative, then it's going to require the country going back into this lockdown type of police state. So how how long does uh, does that last? Uh, well, it lasts as long as COVID. Okay, well then what you're saying is that you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life. And you need to be okay with that. Right. Uh, because it's quote unquote saving lives. And people need to well, understand people, that. People need to understand that. That's right. They need to understand that either you rip the Band-Aid off now uh, and do what, you know, at least has been done in Florida, Texas, uh, uh, to a certain degree, Arizona, uh, and I'm talking about other countries, or you just decide to live in a totalitarian police state uh, for the rest of your life, and how many years does that steal away from people? I mean, how many people would go to prison for three years and say that they didn't lose three years of their life? Right. Right. Very few. So that's what Australia needs to grapple with. And that's what uh, I think your friend that you're that you interviewed really needs to grapple with as well, because if this is the way that if it, our objective is to completely eradicate covid to where there are zero covid deaths, well, then that's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to isolate the United States from all of the countries. You're going to have to isolate states from states, cities from city, and you're going to have to go into this perpetual uh, on and off lockdown totalitarian police state 
for the rest of our lives. It's just not practical. It's like thinking we can turn off the fossil fuel plants tomorrow and there's going to be no consequences or that, you know, we, you know, maybe we'll get there. We'll reduce fossil fuels and we'll put in wind and solar, but it's got to take place over some, you know, time, decades, right? It's got to be thought out. It's got to be calculated. Same with COVID, you know, maybe we'll get there. And by the way, they're saying there's some sources that are saying this will mutate uh you know over and over and over again until it becomes the common cold and and it will actually you know decrease in severity but let's just say that's not true you know we have to think out practical common sense solution what's the risk reward going to be versus putting everybody in prison for go ahead go ahead but 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 when people are calculating that risk reward i think what they're what most people fail to calculate is the, the risk of giving government that type of power and control. Right. And so you, you, your buddy that you interviewed, you know, one of his uh, rebuttals to you, if my memory serves me correctly, was basically, well, we have seatbelt laws, so why shouldn't we have vaccine mandates? Right, that's exactly what and he said. Th- th- yeah, so, okay, well, let's think about that. That would imply that just because we have some laws in the past that means that all laws moving forward are justified and beneficial. Yeah. Would, would anyone in their right mind argue that? Let's go back and remember that, that we had uh, laws in the books in the 1920s that favored eugenics. So does that mean that if we have laws today that come out in favor of eugenics, that they're good because we had them in the past? Right. And another... Uh, example of this that I'd like to give you is people who argue for uh, vaccine mandates. They always say, oh, well, we had them in the past. I mean, look at, uh, you know, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court backs up. Yeah, look at polio. Look at polio, George. What do you want? Everybody to have polio? But let's let's look at the, the, well, first of all, that goes back to the sterilized immunity thing because those polio vaccines have sterilized immunity. So that's a, you're comparing apples to oranges right there. But let's go back to the Supreme Court. So the uh, case they're referencing, uh, Chris, is one going back to 1905. It was uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And this is where uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of Massachusetts that this guy would have to pay a fine, because, which was like the equivalent of $100 in today's money, uh, because he didn't want to get the uh, smallpox vaccine for religious region reasons. So everyone goes back to that and say, well, see right there, there you go. The Supreme Court favors it. So why shouldn't New York or San Francisco, why shouldn't the government, the federal government come out and force every single American to get a vaccine? <laughs> okay, well, let, let's, let's, but, but see what they don't realize is they're, the, they're just proving my argument when, and, and my argument being that be very, very careful how much power and control you give the government because in 10 or 20 years, it'll come back and bite you in the, in the rear end. So let's move fast forward, Chris, to 1927 and another Supreme Court case. And this was Buck versus Bell. And the Supreme Court actually, in the United States, right here, they came out in favor of eugenics and said that it is legal to use forced sterilizations forced sterilizations because the Supreme Court justice said that we we wanted to reduce, and th- this is a quote, 
we wanted to reduce the amount of imbeciles that were breeding, therefore producing more imbeciles that the rest of the U.S. citizens would have to deal with in the future. Okay, so what did he use as a reference point to make that judgment? Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905. Right. (laughs) You see where this goes, people? This is the slippery slope I'm talking about. So, yes, you may be in favor of a vaccine mandate today, but you don't understand that that could take us straight to eugenics in 10 or 15 years. Right. People don't get that that's the path they're putting us on. Another thing they don't understand, Chris. And you don't go back, George. You know, you, you, you it, don't like go what, with, with inf- you don't go with, back until millions of people are killed. Right. With or, you know, or, or you have some sort of atrocity. And that's you know, that's why I always feel like people don't give inflation its due. They don't they don't give it its uh you know uh its due in terms of how dangerous it can be and this is the same thing these types of legal precedents and you know the government kind of taking certain civil liberties you don't go back there's only one way to go and that's backed into a corner until you force a big you know volatile move in the other direction which turns into civil unrest the likes of which most people you know never would think of so you don't go back so why relinquish it now why dance around inflation now why play with fire or why give the government that type of control when you know damn well that they're going to use it against you and your family and everything you love in the future. And that's what people – see, let's go back to Germany in the 1920s. Let's say that they would have come out with a, a, a vaccine mandate. Okay, is that more dangerous or less dangerous than the German government in the late 1930s coming out with a vaccine mandate? I would say that I don't like it, but it's less dangerous. But you have to add that component of risk into the equation. Right. So let's look at the government today. Let's look at what's happening in Australia. Let's look at what's happening with the World Economic Forum. Let's look at what's happening with the IMF and these global elite and the direction they're going. That should tell you that the risk is is to the risk of giving these people the power to say that you have to inject a foreign substance into your body is the equivalent to the risk of the German government saying that in 1935, in my opinion. And people need to open, and even if they think the probability is lower, they have to admit that the probability is far greater than zero. And and most people, that's not even cognizant when they're going through a simple a cost-benefit analysis. You know, in in what what another thing that makes it completely obvious is most of these people that argue for a vaccine mandate, you know, they would be proud of the fact that they are not racist, right? And they would be proud of the fact that they stood up, or maybe obviously they probably weren't alive, but philosophically uh, they would stand up against Jim Crow laws. Well, what is happening right now in New York City? Well, let's just think this through, right? The government is coming in and saying, business, it is illegal for you to serve a certain portion of the population. 
how is that any different than Jim Crow laws? Well, especially when that certain portion of the population same. is predominantly people of color. Because it's there predominantly you. people of color who exactly. are unvaccinated. You know? that, that's right. That that's that's the that is the irony here. But when people just look at all of the risks involved in not only just the the uh, the COVID, but the the vaccines. And I listen. I'm someone that I'm not pro vaccine. I'm just I'm completely indifferent. If you want to get a vaccine, I think that's fantastic. If you don't, I think that is your right. I think that it's a risk. Re- the, the risk reward for each person is completely different. You can't just say with a blanket statement that everyone should get a vaccine and the government should Agreed. force it Agreed. when you're only looking at 70-year-olds that are 400 pounds and have diabetes and you're completely excluding the 25-year-old that is a marathon runner that just got COVID, therefore has natural immunity uh, three weeks ago. Right, or, or the nine-year-old or the or nine-year-old like who is disproportionately less likely to die from COVID than they are from the flu. That's right. That's the real smoking gun, Chris, that you I've know, been talking the, about on my on my Twitter feed is when the when you know or how you know that you are being manipulated is when the government official or quote unquote authority is talking about vaccine mandates, but they completely omit natural immunity. Be, why is that? Because natural immunity offers the exact same benefit as the vaccine arguably a more robust benefit right so how can you sit there and say that we should have this health passport or that the only people that can go to a restaurant in new york city are people who are vaccinated when you have this whole other group that has the exact same health benefit as the vaccine why can they not go to the restaurant you see it doesn't make any sense and the fact that biden or walensky or fauci any of these people, they never, ever, ever, ever talk about natural immunity. Fauci they don't ducks get it. into that level of nuance. He ducks it. Yep. And the reason they don't is because they're trying to manipulate you. This is all about propaganda. And I say on my Twitter feed all the time that whenever these authorities omit natural immunity, it shows you that it's not about health. Right. It's, it's just about it's either about big pharma, it's about power, it's about control, it's about profits, it's about the global elite. You come to your own conclusion, but the one thing it is not about is health. Right. That is the uh, you know, that's an egregious form of intellectual dishonesty to just pretend like natural immunity isn't there. You know, and right. it and it doesn't take up a slice of the pie chart that they want to ascribe to people that need to be vaccinated and you know, if but there's some people that's not going to do it for, you know, they look at that and they say, well, maybe the science is still out. There's people that can look at the lies. They can see, you know, I give a lot of kudos to Bill Maher, who has said now for the last couple of weeks on his show, you know, why weren't we allowed to talk about the lab leak theory? People were banned from social media for it. People were ostracized. They were labeled conspiracy theorists. And now 
all of a sudden the lab leak theory is the leading example of what you know possibly could have happened or where the origins of the virus are from anybody with half a brain it's like yeah of course oh it broke out a mile down the road from a fucking bio lab it's like yeah why don't we make that number one on places to investigate but fine you know i give him credit for saying that but let's just think i mean you were completely written off if you said that you were punished essentially if you said that on social media you were punished for saying it then you have you know Fauci's emails come out where he is obviously aware of you know the potential for this to be a uh, altered virus uh, where cuz you know he's discussing it in early 2020 you have emails from him saying you know uh, doubting the uh, the efficacy of masks uh, yet we still do mask mandates. You know, the lies. This one's my favorite. Uh, Fauci in April 2021. I wrote uh, about this on my blog. Fauci in April 2021 moved the herd immunity guidelines, George, from 60% to 70% up to 85%. The New York Times reported in the pandemic's early days, Dr. Fauci tended to cite the same 60 to 70% estimate that most experts did. About a month ago, he began saying 70, 75% in television interviews. And last week, in an interview with CNBC News, he said 75, 80, 85%, and 75 to 80 plus percent. In a telephone interview the next day, Dr. Fauci acknowledged that he had slowly but deliberately been moving the goalposts. He is doing right. so, he said, partly based on new science and partly on his gut feeling that, quote, the country is finally ready to hear what he really thinks. I mean, that is the New York Times, as left-leaning of a publication as you can get, in April 2021, telling you Dr. Fauci is lying to your face. What's it going to take for people to wake up? Well, they, a lot of them won't, Chris, and I'll tell you why. It's just Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. So it whether is. it's you know whether it's uh, someone in the, the the media, the average Joe and Jane, the people that just are unwilling to open their eyes and use critical thinking, it's just the same dynamic at play, where they have this bizarre, unexplainable, unrational, emotional connection with the people who are lying to them, the people that are constantly contradicting themselves. And the people who are trying to manipulate them over and over and over again. I can't explain it other than through Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. And just not really having much of a backbone and not really, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I, I yeah, keep and, saying and we're not a nation thing, of rugged individuals anymore. We certainly aren't. No, not at all. And these people uh, that would fall into that category... And I've heard a lot of them say, you know, argue for censorship. And I'm sure you've heard yeah. this argument a lot. Well, I even heard it from Sam Harris saying, you know, on one of his uh, podcasts saying that we'll, we should, you know, he was saying that it's good that Facebook and uh, Google or, or whatever uh, social media platform are censoring certain doctors or certain points of, of, of views or opinions regarding COVID. And I mean, my jaw almost hit the ground when I heard him say that. And I see people say it on Twitter all the time, even in the mainstream media, you hear ironically enough, the media of all people, you know, saying that there should be censorship. But I just 
challenge you and all of your viewers to ask yourself when the people who have been in favor of censorship, when throughout history have they been the good guys? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's a great and question. And obviously it's a rhetorical question because the answer is never, never. So should we assume that somehow this time those people are the good guys? Yeah. I don't think so because it always goes to the same place and that's a, a, a authoritarian, totalitarian police state. Why? Because it's human nature. We're all hardwired in a certain way. And if you give the government, like we were saying earlier, that much power and control, you're going to attract sociopaths that have an insatiable lust for the power and the ability to control other people. Yeah, and I just to go back to Bill Maher, one of the arguments he made about why people shouldn't have been censored about the land leak theory is essentially the argument that, you know, the thinking process, the process of determining, you know, arriving at an objective truth has to be somewhat of a free market process, which I agree with, which is... Oh, you mean take, you mean the scientific process? Well, no. What you're describing the, is, this, uh, is ironically the scientific process. But what and all these people that, that are arguing for censorship, they say that they are... Uh, right. you know following the science right well, but how they, can they you don't trust when you're antithetical to the scientific process right they itself. don't they don't trust that the scientific method is going to weed out uh you know the uh the worst practices and and arrive at the best practices or the truths right but i mean his broader point which is a point i make all the time which is you know you have to you have to take all perspectives all arguments and kind of allow free thought and socratic method and question and answer to kind of arrive eventually at best practices at objective truths whatever and you know he made that point and i think that that's you know for somebody like sam harris to say oh it's good to be censoring people it's good not to consider certain points of view even if 99 times out of 100 they are the outliers on the far outside of the uh you know bell curve the one out of a hundred times they're not going to be and so you know just to go back yeah. to to your it, go ahead i'm just sorry i'm sorry to cut you off there but it, ju it just proves the point that freedom is we should prioritize freedom over safety and it's not that safety isn't important it's that freedom is more important. And uh, uh, that's another thing that people really miss because I don't think they've studied history. Let's go back. I mean, you're talking about Jones going off <laughs> on Pierce Morgan about 1776. But but let's go back to, to 1776 for a moment. Let's go back to the uh, Revolutionary War. Did you know, Chris, that most of the Americans uh, referred to the Revolutionary War as a civil war? I did not. The reason they referred to it as a civil war is because you had a, a significant portion of the American population that was sympathetic to the crown. Right. They they were not revolutionaries. Uh, they were they called them Tories. Right. Okay. And the the Tories, their argument could really be summarized in just one word, and that's safety. You see, their argument was that the British provided this huge military, and that was such a benefit that regardless of the freedoms that were being stripped from the American people, it was worth it 
because of the safety and uh, that was given to them by having the British on their side. Okay, where the patriots, the people that were in favor of the revolution, they said, "Okay, I get it, Tories. I understand your point. Yes, it may give us a little bit of perceived safety." to have the British hover over us and be our overlords. But we want freedom. We value freedom over safety. So you had the patriots who valued freedom over safety and the Tories that valued safety over freedom. So I'd ask you the same question to you and all of your listeners. Who was on the right side of history? The people who valued freedom or the people who valued safety? And who's going to be on the right side of history going forward? Exactly. We see it in our society today. We have Tories and we have patriots. The exact same thing. We have people out there that value safety over freedom, like your guest that you had the other day. And then we also have people that value freedom over safety. And I can guarantee you that when we look back on this in 30 years, or when this is studied 100 years from now, they will say that how on earth could those people that valued safety over freedom be so blind? I think you're 100% right. Blind to what's, you know, what has happened historically, but also blind to what is really right in front of us. All we have to do is just open our eyes. That's right. And the way that you can predict the future is by understanding what has happened in the past. 100%. George, I want to end it right there. I thought that was a great point and a great, uh, you know, just little speech there to end on. And I think uh, I think you sum it up nicely. I want to thank you so much for coming on, for making time for my listeners, for making time for me, man. And uh, I tell my listeners once again, check out Rebel Capitalist Pro if you want to let them know what you guys have coming up on the platform, this would be a great time to do that. I wouldn't even send them to Rebel Capitalist Pro. Uh, what I do is I would send them to the YouTube channel that we're really working on. That's the one that we're creating uh, two, three, sometimes four pieces of content per day. That's Rebel Capitalist. And the reason we're really making a push there is because although my passion is macroeconomics and helping people build wealth and thrive in this world of out of control central banks and big governments, I realize that regardless of how much gold you have, regardless of how much Bitcoin you have, regardless of the nominal value of your portfolio, at the end of the day, if you don't have freedom, you got nothing. That's right. And so that's the push that I'm really making on this rebel capitalist channel, why I'm working so hard, why I've rented an office space, why we set up a studio because I'm doing my very best uh, to stand up and fight for freedom. And uh, the more people in your community that could help me uh, do the same, I would greatly appreciate it. George, thank you so much, man. It's a pleasure to have you on, and it's a privilege to know you as a human being. Thanks for having me on, buddy. All it's right. always a good time. Speak to you soon. That was the one, the only, George Gammon. His YouTube channel, you can just search for George Gammon. It'll come up, Rebel Capitalist. And uh, he's got like 330,000 subscribers. 
wonderful channel, super informative. His videos are always like go-tos for me. And his intro video is him sitting next to some flowers. And I used a photo from that for one of my YouTube thumbnails. And somebody commented once, is that George Gammon sitting at the economy's funeral? <laughs> because if you go onto his channel, the first video is always like, hello, I'm George Gammon. And he's sitting there and he's got this fucking like bouquet of flowers next to him. It's pretty funny. Love, George. Love my listeners. Thank you guys so much. If you haven't already, check out my blog. I referenced a couple pieces in this podcast called Fringe Finance. Quote the Raven.substack.com. Link is in the podcast description. Would love to see you over there as well. But for right now, I am the fuck out of here. Peace.